0: appreciate your presence tonight. We have guests with us who have come from quite a distance away, and we really appreciate your being with us. Thank you for for joining our worship tonight as we pray and praise and study the Bible together. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the 17th chapter of Matthew. Matthew, the 17th chapter, and we'll start there in just a moment. One of the most awe-inspiring and breathtaking scenes in Scripture occurred the day that Jesus looked at three of His men and He said, You and you and you, come with Me on a hike. And He takes them up a trail up a mountain. And it would be a hike they would never forget. It would be a mountaintop moment unlike any other. With an amazing scene of such, of such proportions That as they were coming down the mountain. Jesus would look at them and say. Don't you tell anybody what you saw today. Matthew 17 beginning in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun. And His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him or hear Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This all begins back in the 16th chapter in verse 13. When you read in your Bible, in chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the northernmost point that Jesus traveled. In fact, Caesarea Philippi, if you look it up on a map, lies on the southern slope of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a giant of a mountain at 9,500 feet. It is snow-capped most of the year. In fact, Mount Hermon captures the attention of anyone in that region, for you can see it for miles and miles. And so it would be in the area of the city of Caesarea Philippi, on the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, that Peter would make the grand confession of the deity of Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 16. In Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus uses an interesting play on words. He says, I say unto you that you are Peter. He uses the word Petros, which means a stone, a little stone. And upon this rock, he used a whole different word. He used the word Petra, which means bedrock, which means foundation rock. Our Catholic friends and their idea that the church is founded upon Peter is based upon a text in which they don't understand the words. Jesus is using two different words. And what he's saying is, Peter, you are but a small stone. And upon this rock, upon this Petra, Upon this bedrock foundation. What bedrock foundation? The one that Peter had confessed. That thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that bedrock foundation, Jesus said, I will build my church. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even though Peter articulates here this great confession of deity that Jesus is Messiah. I am convinced that neither Peter or James or John or Thomas or Matthew or any of the others really comprehended the totality of what that meant. Because as evidenced by other passages, in their way of thinking, In their minds, Messiah meant more physical liberation from Roman totalitarianism than it did anything else. They're thinking Jewish nationalism. They're thinking Old Testament kingdom Israel. That's what they're thinking. They didn't understand God's plan for the Messiah and what all of that's going to entail. They didn't understand this new kingdom concept that Jesus was bringing of a spiritual relationship, of a spiritual lineage through himself. So they still had a long way to go. And that's evidenced by what we read next in verse 21 of chapter 16. From that day, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. There's four musts in this verse. He tells them he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. He must do all of those four things. He says, I must go to Jerusalem. It was imperative for him by God's plan for him to walk into the lion's den of hostility and hypocrisy waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he knew that. But he must do that. He must go there. Secondly, he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The very ones who should have had a better understanding and a clearer understanding of the Old Testament especially the prophets as they talked about Messiah, would be the very ones who would bring him down. But he said, I must go there. And I must suffer. And third, he said, I must be killed. He he makes no bones about that. He said, it's it's going to happen. The infliction of his sufferings will climax in his death. And then he said, I must be raised on the third day. I'm wondering if they really heard that part. Because Peter in the very next verse, verse 22, it's obvious what he's focusing on. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Jesus makes it clear that there would be no crown without a cross. There will be no glory without his suffering. That this was all part of God's eternal plan for the salvation of man. They didn't understand all of that. When Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and and, and die, his prediction had to be very unsettling and very unnerving and disheartening to 12 men who have invested everything for three years to follow him. They have taken leave of family. They have taken leave of vocation. They have taken leave of friends. They have taken leave of hometown. They have taken leave of everything to walk with Jesus for three years, believing that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now He tells them, I'm going I'm to go to Jerusalem and suffer and they're going to kill me. That made no sense to them. That made no sense. So Jesus doesn't say any more about it. But what He does is give them a week. To let it sink in. And that's when he says, you and you and you, come with me. We're going on a hike. We're going on a hike. Chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. One of the things that I appreciate so much about Jesus, as I study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that he was so at home, in the outdoors, amidst the handiwork of his own creation. And so you can read that Jesus was obviously at home in and around the Sea of Galilee. Or the Bible says in passages like Luke 5 and verse 16 that he would get up early in the mornings, often it says, and he would slip away into the wilderness by himself to pray. And sometimes we see Jesus leaving even the 12 and climbing some hilly trail where he can spend time in prayer with the Father. Yes, there were times when Jesus purposefully walked away from the people. He walked away from the business and the busyness of the multitudes and got out in the nature, into into the world where he could be alone and just commune with the Father. They say there are two kinds of people. There's ocean people, beach people, and there's mountain people. So if you have a choice, all expense paid vacation, you have a choice. Would you choose to go to the beach or would you choose to go to the mountains? Now, my wife is kind of the beach person, so I have to accommodate her occasionally. But I'm a mountain person. And in my closet, there is a backpack, and there is a ski pole hiking stick that I have, I don't know how many places I've been with that. There was a bunch of us guys, and we used to go every year, we haven't done it lately because some of us are getting older, but we used to go every year hiking some of the great national parks out west, and we'd spend a week, and we would backpack, and we would hike. Some of the, the... the greatest scenery that you can possibly imagine. I remember on one occasion, we were in Glacier National Park in Montana and we were hiking this trail and we got up there to the clearing and it opened up and there was this iceberg kind of lake. It was greenish in color because it was so cold and the wind, it was surrounded by jagged peaks and the wind was making a circular motion around those peaks and we got up there after hiking for an hour or so or two and we're all standing there and suddenly everybody sort of separates to just sort of take it in individually. And my friend who is a lawyer walks about a hundred feet over here and I walk about another hundred feet over here and we just stand there and nobody says a word. Think about that. You've got a lawyer and a preacher and nobody says a word which says it must have been something to see. And it was. You ever seen a scene like that where you just are so in awe that just saying something would just almost be, irre- uh, just be uh, irreverent? And I'm, I guess all of us have been there. used to hike every year up to the top of Mount LeConte in the great Smoky Mountains. And we'd sit up there, spend the night all night long up there in a the little lodge they had. And we'd go out there on that old rocky top cliff and we'd sit there and watch the sun go down. And as we're sitting there watching the sun go down, I keep thinking about the song. The words just flood the soul. How great thou art. It's like when you're on the crest of a mountain. Heaven issues you an invitation. You don't get anywhere else. By the way, Luke gives us a little added information. Luke says they climbed the mountain one day and came down the next day. talking about a mountain 9,500 feet high. I don't know how high Jesus went in town, how far he took them, but I know it wasn't some kind of paved path meandering along an American National Park where it's kind of a pull-out kind of thing. This was a hike. This was a walk. This was an adventure. This was something they're going to remember the rest of their lives. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he taking Peter and James and John on this hike up this high mountain. Why is he doing that? Because. Because. Even though they were confident of his identity, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. They got that part. Even though they were confident of his identity, they still lacked confidence in his mission. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Because in their mind, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. And so it would be that Jesus would take them on this mountain climb to reaffirm every claim that he made of himself and that they would come to understand That the fact that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed was not an accident. In fact, hold your finger here. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter was there on the mountain. Let's see what he has to say about that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales... Would we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? He says, "We didn't make this up. I'm not making this up. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What are you saying, Peter? I'm saying I saw it with my own eyes. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I saw it with my own eyes and I heard it with my own ears. Translate. Peter saying, I will never forget what I saw and what I heard on that mountain as long as I live. So what do you see? Well, let's go back to the text. Let's go back to the text in Matthew 17. Let's see what he saw. Verse 2. He, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. The transfiguration of Jesus. For 30 years, Jesus had dwelt in ordinary flesh like everybody else. John 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And suddenly, suddenly Jesus is ablaze with this brilliant light. And in three writers, it's like they're struggling to put it into words to help us understand What they were seeing. Matthew's account, his face shone like the sun. In Mark's account, and most people believe and think that Mark got a lot of his information from Peter, who was an eyewitness. Mark says his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. And Dr. Luke says his clothing became so white they were like flashes of lightning, he says. So how do you put into words what they saw that day? What words can you and I possibly use to describe this? Well, there aren't any, except what we have here. There's not anything in the context of the sermons of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, that equal this. They got to see a supernatural manifestation of the splendor of who He was as deity, as who He was as God. They got to see the majestic glory. And these writers try to put it into words to help us understand what they saw. And I think of Matthew's readers. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And I'm sure as as his Jewish audience is reading Matthew's words, Undoubtedly, their mind would go back in history to the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the Bible says about Moses, his face shone like the sun because he had been in the presence of God. Look at verse 3. Look at what else they saw. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. As Peter and James and John look on, two of the greats from the Old Testament suddenly appear. And they begin to carry on a conversation with Jesus. Which raises two questions. One is, why are these two? Why out of all of the characters and out of all of the people God used in the Old Testament, why Moses? Why Elijah? You ever think about that? Why not Abraham? Or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph? Why not David? Why not Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other? Why Moses and Elijah? And I don't know the answer to that question except to say that out of all of the Old Testament nobody paralleled the mission of jesus any better than did moses and elijah think about that moses was heir to the throne moses gave all of that up to take on the life of a servant to go down into egypt and bring the children of israel out of bondage sound familiar Moses was the communicator of the old law. Jesus was the communicator of the new. Moses, if any man knew the frustration of trying to save people who didn't want to be saved, people who just seemed to be bent upon, upon killing him and bent upon his demise, that was Moses. Sound, sound familiar? Or Elijah. If Moses was the great law giver, Elijah the prophet was the great law defender. Because as you study the life of Elijah, here was a man who had the personification of zeal and courage whose heart burned for God. He was God's miracle-working prophet who came on the scene to try to turn the hearts of these people back to Jehovah. Sound familiar? So I think if any two people knew and understood the struggles of the Savior, and knew and understood the mission of the Savior. It would have been Moses. It would have been Elijah. But there's another question. It says they conversed with Jesus. They were talking with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know what they talked about? Well, we know what they talked about because Dr. Luke pulls back the curtain and tells us in one verse, Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, they spoke about his departure which he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about what Jesus had talked to the disciples about, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. That's what they're talking. They were discussing the very thing that Peter and the others did not understand. They're talking about the very thing that Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, God forbid, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. What's the point? If Moses and Elijah were undisturbed by the thoughts of a crucified Messiah, then why would Peter be? If Moses and Elijah could understand that this was all part of God's plan for his son to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and die so that mankind could be saved, if they could understand this and accept it, then Peter would have to accept it and James and John and all of the others. I said there were two questions. Why these two men? And what did they talk about? I was uh, I was talking about this passage in Cedar Park, Texas, a few years ago. And after service was over, this little girl came up to me, and she was one of these middle schoolers, and she had her notebook. And in fact, she had better notes in her notebook than I had up here. You know, I mean, she's just we, we want these people to just write down everything. And it was obvious she was very smart. and So she came up to me in the foyer and waited her turn, you know. And finally, I walked over to her, and she said, I need to ask you a question. I said, okay. She said, now on page two of my notes, it says here that there were two questions, and she went over the two questions. She said, there, she said, there are really three questions. You did not talk about the third question. I said, well, what was the third question? She said, well, the third question was, how did Peter and James and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? How did they know it was them? And I looked at her and didn't miss a beat. I looked at her and I said, well, honey, they wore name tags. (laughs) They wore name tags. And she goes, oh, and walked away. (laughs) I don't know. How did that, did Jesus introduce them? all? I don't know. It doesn't say. Somehow they figured it out. Somehow they knew who they were. But I know this, up until now, Peter and James and John have been passive observers. They haven't said a word. They're just watching what's going on. So out of Peter, James and John, if you had to pick one of them, just by sheer guess, if you didn't know the rest of if you had to pick one of them who had to open his mouth and insert foot, who do you think that would be? In Luke, the ninth chapter and verse 33, it says, as they were leaving him as Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, Peter said, in a mixture of shock and awe and fear and bewilderment perhaps, maybe hopeful that he'd get one of these, you know, another commendation, blessed are you, Simon Barjona things, you know. Peter suddenly, verse 4, sets forth the very practical idea, in his mind, the very practical idea of building three huts, three shelters, three tabernacles, so that they could all stay together, that they could stay on the mountain. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, first of all, the very thought... That Moses and Elijah, beings from another world, that Moses and Elijah would need some kind of shelter on on the mountain. That's absurd. But one thing is clear. When Peter senses that they're leaving, when he senses they are leaving, he longs to prolong the moment. And he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Up on this mountain, together, translate. I'd rather stay up here on the mountain than go back down there with everyone else. Let's stay here. And whatever was in his thinking, there was some attempt on his part to equate the three of them on the same level. It's like Peter is saying, I can't believe this. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And that's when the holy, heavenly intervention happens in verse 5. While he was still speaking, just getting the words out of his mouth. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am pleased. Hear Him. You know that statement. That statement in that verse, there's three distinct directives in that single statement. First of all, God identifies Jesus as His Son, as His beloved Son. There is Moses and there is Elijah, and as great as those men were. And and, and they occupied a pivotal place in God's plan. They were servants. They were servants of God. But Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus is identified as God's Son. Secondly, His purpose is identified because God says in that voice, I am pleased with Him. You people may look upon a crucified Messiah as a failure. I see it as the Prelude to success of my plan. Because God's trying to save people. And those people God's trying to save would include you and include me. And third, Jesus' teachings are equated with heaven's will because He says, Hear Him. Whatever He says, you need to listen. If He tells you to pick up your cross and follow Him every day, then you pick up your cross and follow Him every day. If He tells you to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, then that's exactly what you do. If He tells you that He's going he's to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed, understand that is no accident. Believe that. Because that's going to happen. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, here Verse 6, when the disciples heard this. Remember Peter, as he writes in 2 Peter 1, says, we heard this on the mountain. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. The first action of Jesus, following this incredible display of deity that frightened these men terribly, first response of Jesus is gentle. It is loving. And when they lifted up their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone. Verse 8, no one except Jesus was there. And as they came down the mountain, eventually, verse 9, Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And Luke says, Luke says, they kept silent and told no one. So they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do. Okay. What's the take-home? What's the take-home? It's a passage we know very well. We've studied and talked about it many times. What's the take-home? All right, let me leave you with three quick things. Here they they are. Number one, my take-home from this, and I hope your take-home from this, is the uniqueness of Jesus in a world of religious imposters? I'll say that again: the uniqueness of Jesus in a world of religious imposters. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in our culture, in our society, do you not know people do the very thing that Peter suggested? Let's build tabernacles of equality. And so, a man comes along and says. Let's build a tabernacle for Jesus. But let's also build one for Gandhi. Let's build one for Buddha. And the voice thunders from the heavens. And the voice says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. But man says, let's build one for Jesus. And let's build one for Muhammad, And let's build one for Confucius. And the voice thunders and says, this is my son. Hear him. And man says, let's build one for Jesus, but let's build one for the Roman pontiff. And let's build one for Joseph Smith. And the voice thunders and says, no, this is my son. Hear him. Why? Because nobody stands equal with Jesus. Nobody. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And John writes, we beheld his glory Glory is of the only begotten, for the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And he's reminding us of the same thing Peter told us that I'll never forget what I saw on the mountain. <clears throat> Secondly, the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus in a world of religious confusion. Most of our religious neighbors operate on the basis of what I feel. And so what I feel rises above what he said. We need to go back to the basics of two words in this text Hear him. And that means more than just hearing about Jesus, that means living what he said, living his will and his words in our homes where we work, where we go to school, how we conduct business. It's formulating our morality on the basis of what he says rather than an upside-down crazy society. It's restoring his church based upon his word rather than people who come along and think they've got a better idea. You know, when it comes to religion, there's a lot of noise pollution. But I'll tell you what, verse 5 God has a way of cutting through the clutter. And he says, this is my son. Hear him. And last, the glory of Jesus in a world of suffering. The glory of Jesus in a world of suffering. You know what happened? Jesus walked down from the mountain and Jesus walked into Jerusalem and Jesus suffered many things and they put him to death why for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son it was his plan that we shouldn't perish but have everlasting life suffering for him would become glory for us Because he paid the price. He paid the debt. We could not pay. You ever sat on top of a mountain? You ever just sat on top of the mountain where you just see for miles? It's like you don't want to leave. You want to just kind of stay there. And I think we probably all had a few of those moments. But here's the deal. We don't live up on top of the mountain. We live in the valley of the shadows. We live in the valley of the shadows of death and we live in the valley of the shadows of disappointment and despair. And every day is a fight. A fight to do right. A fight to make good decisions. A fight to live as I should live. Every every day is a fight to do those things. But if you look, you can see them through the eyes of Peter and James and John the Holy One of God. You know, I think of that verse in the Psalm, Psalm 121 and verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence shall come my help. My help's coming from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. You know what that says? That says when you get down, when you get down, look i tell you what I learned from this passage, ladies and gentlemen. His name is Jesus, and nobody, nobody stands his equal. When we finish our service here just a few moments after the invitation is on, Kendall's going to lead us in majesty. And I think the words of this song speak the passage majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, power, and grace. Not anybody else. Even, even great men like Moses and Elijah. No, no. Unto Jesus be all glory, power, and praise. Majesty. Kingdom of forest.